Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to our webinar this afternoon, where we're going to be discussing State Attorney General Consumer Protection Priorities for 2022. I'm Paul Singer. I am the co-chair of the State Attorney General practice here at Kelly Dry, and I'm very fortunate to be joined by my colleagues today, Gonzalo Mon, Laura Van Druff, and Beth Chun, all of whom work on, on AG consumer protection matters with me. A little housekeeping, uh, you'll see at the bottom a, a chat function. Uh, if you have any questions along the way, please feel free to, to fill them in in the chat. Assuming we have time at the end, we will try to get to uh, whatever questions arise. And obviously, any of us are available and easy to find on the internet if you ever need to, to follow up and, and want to touch base with on, on any of those questions. A little about me before we get started. Uh, I'm fairly new to Kelly Dry. I'm uh, hitting three months here very soon. And before this, I spent my entire career over 21 years at the Texas Attorney General's office working in consumer protection on a variety of matters in, in various positions, including as division chief in the consumer. So it's a little weird for me to be talking about speculation of what the AG priorities are going to be for this coming year instead of being actually in the middle of it. But I'm looking forward to uh, talking to everybody today. So we're going to kick things off and we are going to start talking about um, some of our priorities here. And let's start by talking about why we're focused on AGs in the first place. Attorneys general at times might be sort of the forgotten regulator, regulator in the uh, consumer protection space. They are, you know, unless you've actually met or had to deal with them in an enforcement matter, you may not think about them all the time like you might say the FTC. Um, but certainly, you know, some of you may see your AG on the screen, may have dealt with your AG in an investigation. And if that's the case, you know, you recognize that they have a, an extremely powerful set of tools available to them for enforcement. Moreover, these AGs frequently will band together and work in multi-state enforcement efforts. And no matter the, the political party or, or how extreme their views may be, consumer protection is one of those areas that they really come together and uh, work as, as one united front when it comes to enforcement. Um, so it's really important to pay attention to what happens in the consumer protection space from these AGs. Moreover, AGs enjoy a very powerful set of tools available to them in their state laws. Uh, state consumer protection laws can often be broader than many of the federal laws that exist. They have uh, remedies available to them that the feds might not have. And there's uh, nuanced differences between and among the various state laws that may make particular conduct or a particular industry regulated in, in one state, but not in another. And importantly, they may be regulated in a state, but not necessarily by the FTC. So knowing sort of what the, the state AG powers are is also really important. And finally, I, I just note that AGs have a variety of formality in their processes as to how they actually conduct an investigation that, that may lead to ultimate litigation. You might be familiar with an FTC process and, and sort of be comfortable with knowing that you might have an opportunity to go in front of the commission and explain your case. You may or may not enjoy that same benefit and privilege with a state AG investigation. And so it's just important to know how they, they, can, they can operate. 
despite all these differences, though, it's, it's critical to know that the AGs are extremely organized. There are several national organizations that the AGs are, are members of. And the main one is the National Association of Attorneys General, which is a, a bipartisan group that all AGs are a member of. And this organization in particular has become extremely well organized on the consumer protection front in the last few years with the creation of the Center for Consumer Protection. And so certainly consumer issues have been really highlighted and strengthened in this organization. In addition, there's the Attorney General Alliance, which again is a, a national organization that um, AGs throughout the country are members of, and it's really emerged as a thought leader in consumer protection issues, and, and a lot of priorities have developed out of AGA meetings and discussions. Um, and then in addition, there's the Republican AG Association and the Democratic AG Association that obviously from their name are, are partisan organizations that really focus on some of the, the more social issues that consumer protection can, can be involved in. But knowing these organizations and knowing the leadership of these organizations is also important, right? Because as AGs are setting agendas and setting discussion throughout these meetings and organizations, that can evolve into some of the, the consumer protection priorities that you're going to see throughout the year. And just by way of example, the current National Association of Attorney General President Tom Miller in Iowa um, has made consumer protection his presidential initiative for this coming year. And we're going to talk a little bit about that initiative later on in this discussion today. So before we go further, we're going to have a little poll question for everybody um, that you'll be able to answer. So how many state AG seats are up for election or appointment this year? Looks like we're getting some answers in right now. Come on, nobody thinks more than 60? Be very worried if you did. Okay, so it looks like a, a majority thinks it is 15 to 25. Um, so actually, the answer is over 30 this year. We have elections or appointments in uh, 31 states uh, coming up this, this year. And many of those seats are already empty, either because of term limits from the AGs or because of an AG moving on to run for a higher office. Uh, most recently, an example of that is Maura Healy in Massachusetts announcing her run for governor. Normally, when there's an election cycle like this and a lot of activity, you think that AGs may want to lay low and, and sort of stay quiet and off the radar. But it's a little different now because consumer protection is such a big focus of some of these campaigns and especially some of the major initiatives that AGs throughout the country have been pursuing in, in areas like big tech and opioids. This has become really a, a cornerstone of some of their campaigns. So I expect consumer protection to actually be highlighted this year um, instead of buried. In, in addition, in recent meetings, uh, some of the AGs have highlighted some of their concerns about the way that consumer protection has been enforced by their offices, both the speed of investigations, the amount of resources and commitment it takes at times to, to pursue some of these lengthier, um, drawn-out investigations. And they've encouraged a faster process and a more streamlined and lean process where uh, AGs may be looking to move a lot quicker in the consumer protection space. And then finally, we have the AMG Capital versus FTC Supreme Court decision that held that the FTC lacks the authority to seek equitable monetary relief 
um, under the FTC Act. And that is such an important decision because Chair Khan has already been very clear that one of the ways that she is directing the FTC to work around this decision is to increase its partnership with state AGs. State AGs have a variety of monetary remedies available to them. Not only can they pursue equitable disgorgement in cases, but they have penalty authority that ranges from the the thousands up to the tens of thousands per violation. So very powerful tools that the FTC can partner and make use of. And so as the FTC lends its resources and um, depth to the state AGs, I'd expect there to be a, a certainly an uptick in state AG activity. So we're gonna spend a few minutes now talking about technology as a priority for state attorneys general. And we're really talking here about big tech as the AGs have framed it. And, and when you say big tech, um, that can mean a lot of different things, right? And, and so from an AG perspective, they've clearly been focused in part on the handful of big technology companies that are out there that have a dominant place in the technology marketplace and in different sectors of that marketplace. And there's been a variety of antitrust actions that are gonna continue that, that we'll talk in a little more detail about in a second. Um, but beyond that, AGs have really been looking at you know, dominance in the marketplace as one issue, but also more broadly about how evolving and changing technology creates all sorts of new issues for consumers and how this market that has now become so data heavy and data driven is creating privacy and uh, deceptive trade practice concerns for AGs. In addition, you've started to see AGs look at some of the, the public safety elements of, of online technology and really sort of focus their efforts there too, almost more like a public health initiative than, than even sort of a, a, a more technology-driven initiative. And then you've seen state legislatures also getting into the mix and trying to tackle some of the, the more complicated issues. But really, you're starting to see AGs branch out and, and do a lot in the technology space, and that's just going to continue in this next year. Digging a little deeper into this, the major multi-state cases that are pending right now are obviously going to continue. Uh, the multi-state coalition that has sued Facebook um, over its dominance um, through uh, acquiring key competitors, that case was dismissed last year, but the states are all in the process of appealing. And I expect them to continue to push that and, and pursue their efforts there. In addition, states have joined forces and are suing Google on a number of fronts. And those cases are all gonna continue throughout 2022. There is a multi-state that is focused on um, the ad tech uh, sphere and really looking at Google's dominance in the ad auction marketplace. There are two separate multi-states that are pending in DC that are looking at Google's dominance in the search market and uh, including through its use of exclusionary contracts to obtain that, that dominance. And then there's a pending multi-state out in California that looks at the Google Play Store and alleges it's a, it has abused its dominance in through uh, the in-app payment system in the Play Store. Now, the Play Store case and the ad tech case are both interesting because while they both are antitrust focused, they do also include state UDAP violations where the states are alleging that 
Google engaged in deceptive acts or practices to help obtain that dominance in the marketplace. And so I expect to see states really look at its, their full arsenal of tools um, in the coming year because they, they're seeing sort of some, some ways to combine both antitrust and UDAP as a way to enforce in this space. Um, but beyond the dominance in the marketplace, there are some, some recent indications that suggest you know, states are, are looking in a multi-state way beyond um, those, the antitrust sphere. Uh, 33 states sent a comment letter to the CFPB um, in response to its review of uh, the payment platforms of, of big tech companies. And they really highlighted some of the more traditional consumer protection violations you might expect from AGs, customer service, account access, third-party scams that are engaged through those services. Um, and then late last year, uh, a multi-state coalition announced an investigation of Instagram over the impact that Instagram is having on teenage users. This, like I said before, is sort of mixing into that public health sphere um, and is sort of an interesting theory to, to continue to watch to see how far the AGs are, are able to take some of these investigations. Um, on top of major multi-states, AGs have been doing a lot independently. The District of Columbia is uh, suing both Amazon and Facebook in separate um, antitrust matters, and those cases are going to continue through this year. Um, the states of Mississippi and New Mexico just recently settled with Google over alleged COPPA violations. Um, and COPPA is one of those statutes that I think we may see AGs trying to, to make use of as a, another tool to go after some of these big tech players. Um, Arizona has sued Google over uh, deception related to Google's collection of location information. And then just the last two weeks, we've seen a flurry of activity. First, two weeks, of, two weeks ago, Texas sued Google um, alleging deceptive practices in um, some misleading endorsements over its Pixel phone. Um, and then just this week, Texas, D.C., Indiana, and Washington all sued Google, alleging similar location tracking violations that Arizona did, but importantly have also alleged that Google engaged in a series of dark patterns in order to mislead consumers into providing that location information. And a little later, we'll, we'll talk some more about dark patterns, but really the um, AG focus on dark patterns as a potential violation is going to be something really important and interesting to watch. Finally, I mentioned some legislation that was that was happening. Both Florida and Texas passed laws last year that would have forced major platforms to re require certain types of speech in Florida. Um, it would have been a violation to remove political figures from their platform in Texas. Um, it was a violation that would ban uh, censorship of another's viewpoint. Both of those statutes were pretty quickly held unconstitutional. And while they're being appealed, I, I flag this issue because um, while there's legislation that's pending, states are also publicly announcing investigations on the content moderation front as well, um, with both Texas and Indiana publicly announcing um, that they are looking at that from a UDAP perspective too, really what do you tell people about your content moderation practices and then what do you actually do in practice? Finally, I'll just be very quick on robocalls. Robocalls are going to remain a huge priority for AGs. It's still a top complaint generator. It's also one of the areas that they're most organized in. Um, the AGs have a, a formal working group through NAG 
that looks at robocall issues and they, they use it for both enforcement, but also as a way to communicate with the FCC um, and with courts about their views. And it's an area that they are fairly united throughout the country on um, combating. And so the AGs were very active this past year um, on the multi-state front, both in enforcement and sending comment letters to the FCC um, and in filing an amicus brief in the Sixth Circuit. Um, they're also very active at an individual level and continuing their own enforcement efforts. Um, and I, I note the Indiana and Vermont cases in particular because those were cases against um, companies that were uh, redirecting some of the uh, robocall traffic um, and not sort of direct providers. And so it, it's just a highlight of the AGs trying to look for more players to hold accountable in the robocall space. And I think as we've seen a shift away from um, voice calls as the primary complaint to texts, you might see a, a similar transition in some of the enforcement and attention from AGs. Um, so with that, Laura, I will kick it over to you to talk about some privacy and data security predictions. Well, terrific, Paul, thank you. And, um, and, and welcome everyone. Um, uh, I am pleased to be here. Laura Van Druff, partner at Kelly Dry. Like Paul, I've, I've been with the firm um, for not terribly long, about five months. And my time at Kelly Dry follows not as long of a career in public service as Paul, but I served at the Federal Trade Commission for nearly a decade, um, also uh, practiced at a large law firm um, in Washington, DC, and served as a consumer protection subject matter expert at AT&T. But I am um, joining uh, my colleagues here today to talk briefly about privacy and data security as it relates to the states. And boy, there's a lot to talk about. But before we do that, let's take a short poll. It is Data Privacy Week. And um, for folks that are here on behalf of businesses, this year, my organization is focused on, I'm curious to learn what organizations are focused on. Is it California, other states, um, standard contractual clauses and transfer um, impact assessments or monsters under the bed? Let us know. Okay, well, the good news is um, there are uh, a number of votes. Um, the bad news is monsters under the bed seems to um, have a strong lead, uh, but California is, is at the head, um, uh, right, right behind Monsters Under the Bed, and that is where we will start our conversation. So there's lots happening in the states on privacy. Um, suffice to say, we can't um, cover all of it, and we're not going to touch on um, standard contractual clauses because well, frankly, that's not the purview of attorneys general, but we are going to talk about what's happening um, in the states at, at, a, at a high level because we're talking about so very many things um, during today's uh, conversation. And as it relates to uh, the states, let's start with California where state privacy began, uh, gosh, nearly four years ago. Um, we wanted to give an overview and, and California is really where, where things started. Um, certainly privacy practitioners have invested lots of hours, lost lots of sleep. Uh, working on privacy compliance as it relates to California. CCPA established consumer rights to access, delete, opt out of the sale of data. And in the time since CCPA was approved and since the legislature's approved amendments, the Office of the Attorney General in California has issued regulations and the legislature has passed the CPRA, among other things. Um, the CPRA takes effect in less than a year. Now, the CPRA 
is a um, significant uh, development, which um, we want to talk about for, for just a moment. Among other things, it introduces the idea of sharing as a distinct activity from selling, which will affect businesses' opt-out obligations. Um, it also creates new consumer rights, including a right to correct, uh, a right to opt out of automated decision-making, a right to restrict the use of sensitive personal information, and the right to certain data portability. And it will also uh, create, it does create rather, a, um, uh, a new rulemaking and enforcement authority um, in the California Privacy Protection Authority, a new, new organization, and Paul, if you could advance. Um, and that CPPA is it issued its, its invitation for comments on that rulemaking back in September. And that gave some indication of what uh, the CPPA might be most interested in, including risk assessments and automated decision-making. Uh, the timeline for that rulemaking, um, we know that it needs to conclude by July 1, 2022, but decisions that or questions that we're getting from clients include, you know, when are we going to see the drafts? And the answer is, gosh, we don't know. Um, but uh, we, we are keeping an eye on things like uh, publication of um, uh, open meetings by, by the board. So Paul, if you could advance. We're seeing activity in other states too including the second and third states to adopt comprehensive privacy legislation. Uh, Virginia um, approved the Consumer Data Protection Act, which takes effect in less than a year in July 1, excuse me, January 1 of, of 2023. It's similar to the California in that uh, controllers are required to offer opt-outs under certain circumstances. And Virginia breaks new ground in US state privacy law by requiring consent to process sensitive data which is defined to include precise geolocation, genetic data, and other paradigmatic data elements. Now, controllers in Virginia will need to conduct data protection assessments for high-risk activities and for targeted advertising, profiling, personal data sales, and sensitive personal data processing. So importantly, there's no uh, private right of action in Virginia, no rulemaking, and again, that we have um, We'll just mention that the Virginia has off-year elections, um, and uh, this past November, uh, Republican uh, Jason Miaris was um, was elected to replace Mark Herring, and it's unclear um, the extent to which privacy will be a top priority for Jason Miaris. He's only been in office for a couple of weeks. He campaigned on crime prevention, restoring small uh, a pro-small business Virginia. Um, so we are monitoring to see the extent to which privacy is a priority for his office. Next, we'll move to Colorado. Um, the Colorado Privacy Act takes effect July 1, 2023. It's similar in many respects to the Virginia CDPA. Um, most rulemaking must be completed by July 1, 2025. An exception to that is for the universal opt-out requirement. Um, by July 1, 2023, and Paul, you can advance, uh, the Attorney General, and once more, please, the Attorney General is required to adopt technical specifications for universal opt-outs or global privacy control. Uh, we may begin to see what General Phil Weiser's vision for these and other matters subject to his office's rulemaking authority, uh, what, what his vision for those um, matters are as early as tomorrow when he hosts an event for Data Privacy Week with Wyoming Attorney General Bridget Hill, 
um, their staffs and leaders from the private sector um, to discuss a number of subjects, including privacy resources, data privacy, protection, um, their, their best practices and development, developments rather in US privacy regulation. So other states, we're seeing developments elsewhere in the country. Um, this map is a couple weeks out of date, but the International Association of Privacy Professionals is tracking legislation in every state house. Um, we at Kelly Dry, we're keeping an eye on activity in more than a half dozen states, including Florida, Indiana, Washington, and New York. And while companies are, are managing for risk in California, Virginia, and Colorado, waiting for the other shoe to drop elsewhere is so much harder to address from a compliance or a business perspective. And, and this is something that we're working with our, our clients to, to try to future-proof, but, but certainly it's a challenge. And so this is something um, that we work with every, uh, work with our clients on um, just on, on a continual basis. So while we monitor these legislative developments and the regulatory developments, we also counsel our clients on bread and butter state law risks. Now, the first I wanna mention is biometrics. It's in the news constantly because the plaintiff's bar continues to bring multi-million dollar cases in Illinois under its Biometrics uh, Information Privacy Act. The Kentucky legislature is considering a copycat bill this session, but other states have biometric laws without private rights of action. Um, localities too are getting into the action with cities like Baltimore enacting um, criminal ordinances uh, relating to facial recognition. But even more fundamentally, states have unfair and deceptive trade practices authority um, that they use to address things like promises that companies make to consumers about privacy. We're talking about online privacy representations, social media influencers, privacy policies. It's all fair game. Every state also has a breach notification law, compliance with which can be really tough to navigate because every state has its own gloss on how it approaches data breach notification. And finally, children's privacy is a focus for state regulators. Uh, Paul mentioned this earlier. Um, in the last two months, New Mexico and Mississippi, their attorneys general announced settlements with Google to resolve COPPA claims in the ed tech space. Um, that's because uh, setting aside the three state privacy laws, uh, California, Virginia, and Colorado, which each address children's data, the federal Children's Online Privacy Protection Act may be enforced by state attorneys general. They're stepping up to do it as evidenced by New Mexico and Mississippi and earlier actions by other state attorneys general. We expect to see more of this in the future. But privacy isn't the only focus of state regulators. I'd like to turn this over now to, uh, to Gonzalo to talk about automatic renewals. Thanks, Laura. And uh, I'm a partner in Kelly Draw's advertising group. I've, I've actually been with the firm for over 20 years at this point. When we're talking about automatic renewals, we're generally talking about any um, promotion in which a consumer signs up for something, whether it's a good or a service for a period of time, and unless they take an affirmative step to cancel at the end of that, they're going to be charged again. Uh, next slide, Paul. These have been around for a while and it's traditionally an area that has generated a lot of complaints in part because if consumers don't understand that they're going to be charged on a repeated basis and they get surprised when they see those charges on their credit card bills, they, they reach out uh, both to the company and to state AGs. 
So not only have we seen this uh, traditionally be an area um, of concern, but there's been an increase in the business model. If you can just click once there. Um, this is from the Washington Post talking about how the model has increased, particularly during the pandemic, when consumers are uh, shopping from home more. And you can see the numbers of services that are involved. And I think we have a poll question now. Just to get a sense of um, the scope of the subscription economy. Tell us what you think the size of the economy is currently. Um, yep, that's the right answer, 650 billion. And uh, UBS is actually expecting that to go into over a trillion in the next few years. So traditionally an area that generates complaints, increase in the business model. And because of that, we are seeing those last two bullets, an increase in the number of state laws that address this. And then uh, this becoming an enforcement priority at both the state and the federal level. Next slide, please. When you look at these laws, they, they generally fall into three buckets. The first is the sector specific ones. So for example, if you are offering service contracts or gym memberships or dating services, there are some states that have laws that apply very narrowly to those. And I'm not gonna spend any time on those, but I just wanted to raise those because if you're in certain areas, you may have specific requirements that we're not, not going to cover. A number of states and on the federal level have laws that are more broadly applicable to subscriptions of goods or services, and that's where we're going to spend our time. But I also want to look briefly at that, that last bucket, and this is a, a theme that Laura brought up earlier. A state may not have something that's directly on point, but they can go after you under their general consumer protection statutes. So, for example, just because uh, uh, you don't have a statute saying you've got to disclose certain things in conjunction with the automatic renewal, that may be required under traditional advertising laws that require you to clearly and conspicuously disclose material terms. Next slide, please. As we see more laws, the good news is that there's a lot more similarities than there are differences. And these are some of the key requirements we see. First, you have to clearly and conspicuously disclose the terms. Some statutes leave it at that, and some are a little bit more detailed. They talk about font size or, or placement and exactly how that has to be done. It's always important to get consent. Uh, I, I think most of us can agree the gold standard is probably having people check a box to indicate they agree to the terms. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, a pre-check box does not work. And the FTC has recently talked about that. And companies often figure out where they want to end up in, in the middle there. Some states require you to send an acknowledgement email with the terms of, of the subscription. And then very importantly, a lot of states are also requiring companies to send a notice before renewal. So if you've signed up for a year and the service is going to renew at the end of that year, you would have to send a notice telling consumers, hey, your subscription is about to renew. If you don't want that to happen, here's what you need to do in order to cancel. Which leads us to the last requirement. You need to have an easy cancellation mechanism. States have gotten upset at companies that force consumers to jump through hoops or through various save attempts. So one general rule to keep in mind is that if consumers are able to sign up online, they should generally be able to cancel online. You, 
you, you probably cannot require them to call and try to save them when they do that. Next slide, please. These are just a few enforcement examples, and I don't, I'm not going to go into details, but um, they're all fairly recent. You can get a sense of what the dollar amounts are. One common theme in these is that consumers were allegedly surprised when the service is renewed, so that feature may not have been prominently disclosed. And if you click one more time, uh, this case just came out in, in January, and I wanted to highlight this separately because while the majority of cases in this area involve B2C practices, the FTC just announced a settlement involving subscriptions that were offered to small businesses. So that's uh, apparently in scope as well. Next slide, please. Actually, if you can just click one more time there too. Um, the, the first case on the previous slide was ABC Mouse, $10 million settlement. It's, it's an eye-catching number. The, um, I always kind of like to look at what happens after a settlement, how companies take their consent decrees or their orders and, and implement those. So what you see on the right is what ABC Mouse did after the FTC settlement. And I'm not saying that this is what you have to do, but it's a pretty good guide. You can see right there at the bottom, uh, there's a checkbox that's not pre-checked. Consumers would have to check that to indicate they agree. It pretty clearly says, here's what you're going to be charged now. It's going to be renewed unless you cancel. They actually tell you even where to cancel it. Um, so again, this is something to think about. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty clearly done. It's above the submit button, and it requires that checkbox. Next slide, please. And again, since we're talking about hot topics for AGs, this is certainly a hot topic where we expect to see more enforcement, both at the federal and the state levels. Uh, Paul talked a little bit about dark patterns, and, and the FTC has sort of wrapped this into that. Uh, in, in October, they, they talked about how they've been getting complaints, and part of it has to do with these dark patterns that cause people to sign up with services that they don't know are going to automatically remove. So certainly expect to see more action from the FTC, primarily on the B2C side, but maybe also on the B2B side. A number of states have indicated that this is an enforcement priority. And actually, if you can just click one time, uh, some states are actually inviting complaints. This is from Colorado. You can see at the bottom, they, they talk about the, the new law and it says, hey, if you believe that, that you had a problem with this, here's how you can file a report. I think it's always important to monitor complaints, um, particularly with AG issues. On, on the class action side, a class action can come out of nowhere, right? Because you may just have an, uh, a plaintiff's attorney who's looking for a way to make money. But in my experience, I think a lot of AG investigations are driven by complaints. And, and the good news is you usually have a hint that those are coming, that they're most likely to come to you first. But now let's look at the topic of complaints a little bit more broadly. And for that, I will turn it over to Beth. Thanks, Gonzalo. Um, Paul, can you go to the next slide? Thank you. Um, so as a brief introduction, I'm Beth Chun. I'm a senior associate in the advertising law group at Kelly Dry, and I'm in the state AG practice. Um, like Paul, I've been um, 
years at the Texas AG's office, a little less years than him, um, in the Consumer Protection Division. And I uh, spent a few years as the intake and complaint team supervisor before joining Kelly Dry with Paul a few months ago. Um, can we do a poll question to kickstart this segment? All right, so um, what are some of the top types of complaints consumers make to state AGs? Tenants' rights, auto sales, unknown businesses or callers slash scams, or all of the above and more? Okay, and um, most of you all figured out um, that the answer is all of the above and more. Um, although we do receive, uh, uh, the, the state AGs, uh, we see that they receive a lot of complaints regarding tenants' rights. That's not really the focus of our discussion today, but um, just thought I would give you a taste of some of the types of complaints that they may receive from consumers that may not necessarily relate to traditional consumer protection. So turning to auto renewal complaints, um, as Gonzalo was describing, uh, because of the growing body of law related to auto renewals um, and the um, subscription services as a growing um, industry, uh, there's they're also a growing source of complaints um, as the model has become more popular, as Gonzalo pointed out. So um, consumer complaints in this area could actually trigger AG concern even without a large volume of complaints because as um, AGs may allege that there is a potential issue that consumers have not understood that they have actually made the subscription purchase. And so therefore, um, this sm a smaller number of complaints may be at the tip of the iceberg as consumers haven't discovered their subscription purchase yet. So just keep in mind that um, it's not always the number of complaints that may generate a state AG inquiry. So uh, there are differences between the states regarding how the states handle their consumer complaints. Um, and that's important to understand as it may affect how your uh, business approaches um, consumer complaints and um, it, with a given state. So states typically have complaint databases where they will receive consumer complaints. Um, but when they receive those, some states may transfer certain complaints to the um, to other AG's offices, depending on the subject of the complaint, such as if the complaint is regarding a business in a, that's located in another state, or if the consumer resides in a different state. But there are other state AG's that keep all of their complaints and use them as a reference point. Um, so some offices have complaint teams or call centers uh, that address consumer complaints that are actually separate from their consumer protection division, which can um, impact the way that they address complaints. Um, and some of those teams may be headed by attorneys, while others may be headed by other non-attorney staff members. And as far as whether businesses are able to obtain um, and view consumer complaints, uh, some state databases are actually made public online where consumers can go in and or businesses can go in and see their complaint numbers, while others may only be available through open records requests or sometimes not even at all. Some states may take the position that their complaints are not public. 
Uh, states also mediate complaints to different degrees. There are, there are a few states that actually go through a more, um, a more typical mediation type process where they may actually engage in phone calls with both the consumer and the business to try to achieve an individual resolution for a consumer. Um, while there are many states who instead send complaints to the business uh, for a response and um, then they expect uh, businesses to make a response in writing. Um, other states only um, send complaints to businesses on a case-by-case -case basis rather than doing so routinely. So you may not fully appreciate the entire scope of complaints for your business uh, in, in a given state. So as you can see, uh, states use complaints in some instances to help achieve individual resolutions to consumers, while other states take a different approach and mainly use their complaint databases and their consumer complaints to understand trends and help shape enforcement priorities for the office. Um, so some of those other complaint topics like we mentioned in the poll and on the slide here are robocalls, which uh, Paul also alluded to as being a big focus of the attorney general. And they are uh, because they are a top source of complaints. It can sometimes be difficult to track particular issues that are going on with uh, robocalls and scam calls because the business that's calling the consumer is not always obvious to them. Um, and sometimes the consumer is even being actively misled regarding the source of the call, such as in instances with fake customer service calls or fake government calls like the IRS and social security scams that we all know about. Uh, COVID, of course, has been a huge source of complaints for the AGs, um, especially during the beginning of sort of the emergency declarations um, early in 2020. And we saw complaint numbers for the year 2020 increase by a very large percentage over normal levels in some states. Uh, complaints were being driven by price gouging allegations, uh, both traditionally in stores, but also allegations of price gouging on social media by, by individuals and others. Um, also, one thing to keep in mind with price gouging is that uh, a single store that may be sort of an isolated incident of, of price gouging can develop a huge uh, social media kind of following as consumers start to spread the story or the picture of a price gouging incident online. And they may then start reporting to the AG's office just from the social media posts that they've seen. So generating a huge response from one isolated incident and thus elevating it to the concern of a state AG's office. Um, so several states did bring price gou gouging actions, alleging price gouging throughout the supply chain um, on products such as masks and eggs. Um, but there are also many consumer complaints that came in regarding uh, cancellations that occurred in different industries due to the pandemic and those consumers being unable to obtain refunds. Um, sometimes uh, states did bring actions against those kind of businesses. There was actually a multi-state with a business called Voyagers, a travel type business um, with seven state AGs in that area. And now we still have not, um, uh, we have a continuing concern with with uh, COVID and sort of the, the uh, issues of concern have shifted as now AGs have started issuing consumer alerts regarding COVID testing, um, potential scams, and price gouging and misrepresentations. 
so expect COVID to continue to be a concern for state AGs this year. Um, we also see automotive complaints as one of as one of the biggest complaint generators for attorneys general as um, consumers may complain uh, about a range of things from defective vehicles to deceptive sales at the dealership um, to more administrative problems with titles and registrations. And this is an area where states may share authority in the space with other state regulators, uh, but they still may be very active, particularly in that unfair and deceptive uh, acts and practices realm that's their general bread and butter. And um, we may expect that with increased automotive ingenuity and new technologies with self-driving cars and plug-in hybrids and electric cars, uh, we, we may expect to see some more complaints with those um, type of businesses. Um, I also just wanna quickly flag um, lending practices and charities as maybe some areas that may not be as obvious as generators of consumer complaints. But uh, with lending practices, we, we see complaints um, about concerns that may not actually be violations of the law um, in some instances where consumers may be complaining about high costs of financing. Uh, but more novel lending practices, as Paul previously mentioned, um, like with new payment processes um, or new um, types of lending may catch the AG's attention, particularly if consumers don't receive uh, clear disclosures of whatever the novel practice is. And with charities, um, consumer divisions may not be the main um, regulator for charities in their state, um, sometimes sharing authority with other divisions or agencies, but uh, some consumer offices do have the ability to take action on the traditional unfair deceptive practices areas and uh, when, there, when there's been deceptive representations about what the charity will, will do, including there was a recent multi-state with Associated Community Services um, in 2021. So um, that concludes my section and I'd like to pass it along to the next area. Thanks Beth. So um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about some of the major public health initiatives that uh, AGs have been focused on because that's that's obviously going to be a, a continued priority for those offices uh, in 2022 and and probably for years to come and and none is bigger than opioids um, and I say that in part because I spent the last several years of my life really dedicated to to some of these cases but um, also because obviously the AGs have been very very public about. Uh, their fight to, um, you know, protect their citizens from the the opioid epidemic. Um, we, we're at sort of a critical juncture on a, a number of opioid-related matters that I think are going to shape how things progress throughout this year. Um, first, the uh, major global opioid settlement between the distributors in Johnson & Johnson and all the states and, and subdivisions um, had a, a critical sign-on date of yesterday. Um, that was the deadline for political subdivisions in participating states to affirmatively join into the settlement. Um, there are already some media reports with the plaintiffs bar um, touting that there's, you know, uh, over 90% of subdivisions that have, have signed on to that deal, um, which is certainly a, a very impressive um, number and participation rate for an opt-in settlement process as opposed to a, a more traditional class action opt-out process. Um, but the companies themselves still have several weeks to decide whether or not to proceed with the settlement. And so we're in sort of a, a critical stage right now of, of decision-making 
um, with that settlement. Um, in addition, uh, two opioid manufacturers that are in bankruptcy, Purdue and Mallinckrodt, are at critical stages. Um, I'll, I'll talk about Mallinckrodt real quickly first, just, just because it's easier. Um, it's, it has had a confirmation hearing and is waiting for a final order um, on that plan. Um, Purdue is a little more complicated. Um, its plan was previously confirmed and had the support of 40 state attorneys general. Um, those states that did not support it appealed the confirmation plan. And in December of last year, that plan um, was vacated. Um, that still remains under appeal. In fact, the, the um, Court of Appeals right now is today taking up whether or not to, to proceed with an expedited appeal of that. Um, but um, what happens in Purdue is sort of still remains to be seen. And so I think these cases really flag two really important issues that are going to be decided over um, really the next, um, the, the next several months and, and throughout the year. One is, you know, how valid this voluntary joinder type settlement is, right? The distributor and J&J &J model, is that something that can work for complex multi-state consumer protection settlements where there are not just states, but thousands and thousands of political subdivisions involved? Um, and then two, is bankruptcy a viable path for settlement of some of these complicated public health claims, um, especially where the bankruptcies are looking to get releases of non-participating individuals, so non-bankrupt individuals, in particular in Purdue, the Sackler family, um, is that a viable path forward? Um, and it, it is important to note sort of that individual liability piece, um, because you'll see as a common theme throughout the, the discussion of these public health initiatives, individual liability is certainly something AGs are very focused on when they're looking to hold parties uh, culpable for, for the misconduct. Um, as these critical questions are being answered, though, trials are going to continue throughout 2022. Um, while there were some setbacks for states and local governments in 2021, um, the end of the year really saw two big verdicts um, in their favor. First, the, uh, in the MDL that's pending in Cleveland, there was a successful bellwether trial for the subdivisions there against the pharmacies. Um, and then in New York, the state and subdivisions successfully uh, got a verdict against Teva at the end of the year. Um, while those two cases still have um, the penalty phase or, or damages phase to come in this next year, and undoubtedly uh, those verdicts will be appealed, um, they just are a sign that you're going to see continued litigation um, by state AGs in particular um, in this next year. Uh, vaping seems to be having a very similar path um, in some ways as, as opioids. Um, Juul has obviously been a high priority of state AGs in the past. Um, there not only are more than 10 states that are in litigation with Juul asserting a variety of consumer protection claims against their marketing practices, um, but just this last year, two states settled, uh, first North Carolina on the eve of trial settled with Juul, and then Arizona um, followed towards the end of the year. Um, you know, that may signal sort of a track for some of these cases to, to get resolved. 
Um, but there was also a publicly announced multi-state looking at, at Jules marketing practices as well. So, you know, that may be a focus of, of the year to come. But one interesting note, right, is that after North Carolina settled um, towards the end of the year, they brought suit against Jules founders um, for similar kinds of uh, uh, marketing claims. And so, again, sort of a focus on individual liability. Um, several of the other cases pending have also named individuals. And so that's going to be something to, to look for in the future. Um, but beyond Juul, there are a variety of vaping companies that have gotten the attention of, of AGs. I flag uh, Eon Smoke here just as an example, because um, both Arizona and Massachusetts have recent uh, uh, judgments and and Massachusetts had a settlement, um, you know, against that company. So again, I think they're going to be very active. But these public health initiatives are are raising some common themes that I think are important to pay attention to for consumer protection enforcement more broadly. Um, first, like I said, is is individual liability. Uh, AGs can pursue individuals for their own um, deceptive and misleading misconduct, um, much like the FTC can. Um, but it's a, a relatively untested area of law in a lot of states. And so as, as states continue to look to individuals to hold accountable, it's something to pay attention to because um, that may be an area that we see more and more activity, um, both from states and then some challenges being brought to that. Um, second are some of the novel theories that are being asserted in these cases. And, and I say novel, um, although, I mean, they're, they're laws that have been on the books, but perhaps being used in, in new ways. Um, the primary one is, is that many uh, of the, the vaping and certainly opioid cases are asserting a public nuisance claim. Um, that claim was the sole grounds that Oklahoma successfully got a verdict against Johnson & Johnson in their opioid litigation on. Um, but then it was subsequently overturned last year, finding that um, the public nuisance laws don't apply to, to the uh, opioid conduct. So I think how far those laws can go is certainly going to be challenged in this coming year. And I think I would pay a lot of attention to AGs kind of pushing the envelope and, and we'll get some clarity as to how far they can push it. Um, and then finally is, is state AG relationship with municipalities. Um, both of these initiatives have seen a lot of action by by local governments in addition to the state who oftentimes can have overlapping authority. Um, the, the dynamic that that creates, though, puts some tension on the relationship between the state and its subdivisions because it can be perceived as a race to the courthouse. You may end up with one particular subdivision getting to the courthouse first and, and obtaining a large judgment that could conceivably bankrupt um, a company and that doesn't benefit the, the public as a whole. So how that relationship plays out is going to be interesting. Some AGs have kind of flagged that as a reason why they may need to be more public about their investigations and talk in, in more specificity about what they're doing and who they're looking at so that localities know that the AGs are, are in that space and that they're actively engaged and, and looking out to protect their consumers. So um, I'm going to turn to some, some quick closing thoughts with the handful of minutes that we have left. And I, I want to start with, with something that I you know, kicked off this, this presentation with, which is the NAG presidential initiative, because it brings a lot of these issues together. Um, General Miller's initiative is Consumer Protection 2.0, Tech Threats and Tools. And there are a lot of, of variant, various uh, subjects within that that I think are very interesting to look at. 
Um, first is this is going to be a focus for AGs to really look at some of the evolving and changing technology and how that technology is used to commit some of the intractable frauds that AGs have seen. You know, things like, you know, Beth mentioned the IRS scam, things like that, that have been around forever. But how is technology basically aiding some of those those old scams to become new again? Um, so AGs may be really paying attention to changing technology, but also maybe taking a hard look at that technology and how it may be aiding and, and, and assisting in some of these these frauds. Um, Second is the dark patterns and algorithms. And we touched on dark patterns at a couple of points throughout this conversation. And what that means and how far AGs are going to take that is really going to be highlighted this coming year. So dark patterns can be used to define any sort of tactic that um, persuades a person to take an action that they may not have otherwise taken. Um, but when you look at things like the Google lawsuit this week, um, and how AGs have historically looked at that in things like negative options, I think that it's going to mean more of a focus on the deceptive and misleading conduct that's part of that dark pattern that actually results in, um, in forcing consumers to take an action they, they wouldn't have taken. So I, I don't know that you're going to see a huge stretch here, but obviously this is something to see how far AGs might take it. Um, algorithms are going to be really interesting and sort of automated decision-making to see how is it that, um, you know, decisions are being made for you as a user of technology. And this is going to have a variety um, of things um, that, that are covered. Um, one is what kind of data is collected to feed into algorithms, what's disclosed about that data collection practice, and how does the algorithm actually function? How does it make use of that data? Um, do individuals know how it's being made use of? And then do the end results, are they actually accurate? Is it, is it a valid result? And is it, um, you know, is it potentially um, engaged in some sort of bias or even discriminatory practice? So AGs are going to be all over the place with algorithms this year. And so this initiative is just highlighting that. Um, finally is an outreach and education component. And the AGs are really looking in, in part, you know, at, at companies and technology as a source to reach new consumers. Um, this may create an opportunity for some partnerships, right? So if you are a company that has a consumer base that you can do some outreach and education on, um, you know, this may be a good chance for you to reach out to your attorney general and, and talk to them about how you can aid in some of those efforts. AGs have also been clear they want companies to engage them and come talk to them um, so that, uh, that they can, you know, know who you are, know that you're a good corporate citizen and rely on you as a resource in the future if they need it. Um, so last thought, as I know we're out of time, just recapping some of these key points, this unique election cycle and the FTC's authority is going to be a lead to uh, a lot more enforcement. Um, AGs are going to continue to push boundaries this coming year with new laws that they're enforcing. Um, they may be more transparent on their investigations, but there is great opportunity now to do some, some proactive outreach to your AGs.
Thank you, everybody that attended today. Um, this concludes our webinar. And like I said at the outset, please feel free to reach out to any of us here on the State AG team at Kelly Dry. We're here to help. We are constantly monitoring these developments as they unfold. Check out our blog on adlawaccess.com where we keep everybody up to date as things develop. Um, and like I said, you know, please feel free to call us if you have any questions and want to follow up. Thank you all so much.